Hello again, I'm Allison Howell, and you're listening to season two of The Trunk Show, where we hear about the rental adventures of leading event rental professionals straight from the source. The show is brought to you by RW Elephant, mighty inventory management software designed to help you conquer the chaos in your event rental business and reclaim your creativity. Because the world needs more of the beautiful events and environments you create. In this episode, I'm talking with Corinna Rasa, CEO of Patina Rentals, all about building a rental business that lasts. My name's Corinne Rasa, and I am the founder and CEO of Patina Rentals in New York. Yeah, well, take us back to your early career. I'm, I'm interested to know about your first jobs in events. How'd you get into the event industry in general? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had been in the corporate world of marketing for a while um, uh, with different large brands and, and luxury brands and like really cool cutting edge organizations um, and got really sick of, of trying to play the corporate game and, and climb the corporate ladder and, you know, that whole thing and really thought I could go out on my own and start my own marketing agency. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, having lots of experience in events in the corporate world, I really was so inclined to go more towards event marketing. Uh Um, and so I had started an experiential marketing agency that, um, was great. It was fun. It was a a big hustle. We won, won lots of awards. Mostly in New York or traveling? No, all over the place. So much travel. Lots of travel all over the place. We did South by Southwest. We did the Olympics, things like that. But, you know, what ended up happening was I just got super, super burnt out, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't able to to scale the business the way I needed to. Um, I had a a baby at home who I missed terribly. Um, And although that was like it was a success on paper, it wasn't a success to me. It wasn't what my success looked like. Okay. When I stepped back and looked at all the assets I had, it was it was just me. You know, I was selling myself mm. and I was pitching my ideas and I was executing the right. ideas and and um, you know, I was a, a glorified one man show and um it was hard to, you know, I was working in the business. I didn't work on the business at all. Yeah. So then tell me like what when did you first have the idea for Patina? So I was producing a, a big event in Times Square. It was a um this kind of like celebrity thing. It was going to be widely, you know, all over social media. And we needed some some chairs at the forefront okay. on this stage because that's kind of where the whole action came, took place. Um, mm-hmm. And I hit all my normal rental companies. I had, you know, we only had a week to go. I couldn't find anything around. Huh. I was really at a loss. Um, and then I realized that I had these the perfect chairs for what the setting called for at home um, because I had <laughs> I had been um, just like a, a, a flea market junkie for years and years and yeah. years. It was my personal passion and hobby to just you know I had an old farmhouse at the time upstate and just go to flea markets every morning and and um, yard sales and antiques and and really just kind of furnish my house. And so I had this house filled with like cool vintage things, and yeah. I said. I can use those chairs. And so everything kind of came together and I looked around and realized I can probably, I got 
super excited and super obsessed about the idea of creating this, you know, in New York anyway, there was, there was the, the regular event rental companies that are kind of sure. standard, the party rentals of the world. And then there are prop houses, which would be great for, you know, uh, the movie studios and, and they're just sure. huge warehouses filled with tons and tons and tons of stuff that you sort through. But, you know, there was really nothing that spoke to professionals that were able to give you the, the soul or character or help you tell the story that you needed to tell as an event creative. Um, And so I became super obsessed with this idea um, and kind of looked around and realized, you know, I found uh, found in California and looped in Austin and realized I'm not the only crazy person with this idea. (laughs) Like, this could be an action. It's always good to know you have people like you somewhere else. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought, wow, you know, this could be an actual viable business. Um, sure. turns out it, it is. Um, but, and that's when I went, I, I hit the road and went to Austin and, and visited Rhoda and Anna and I went to, to meet you and Jenny and in, yeah. in LA and, and, um, got to learn a little bit about the other businesses, which I was really privileged to be able to do before I started my own. Yeah. So then tell me what was that starting process like? Was it a huge grand opening reveal or was it slow and steady sort of just adding things to your own events and sort of spreading the word? You know, I had been working on my, at my agency full time and really kind of saw this as a really good, passionate, a good side hustle for my creative passions um, and potentially a viable business and hopefully a viable business, but really kept my agency going on for a bit. So, um, but, you know, was really motivated and and personally excited about the launch of Patina. And so put together a website, took images of everything that I had had in my house, bought a couple of new pieces, not that many, um, started off with, with just a mismatch of, of, things. I I honestly cannot believe that we got it off the ground with what we had. Um, and then, you know, hit, it was back in, in 2012 and there was a couple of, um, like indie wedding things in Brooklyn and, um, went to those to meet a couple people and still working with them, you know, all these years later. So, um, it wasn't a big, it was not a big grand opening. It was pretty slow and organic and, um, but it, it, you know, everything that we have today is built upon those relationships that we made early on. Yeah. So you mentioned a few indie things happening in Brooklyn. Tell me more about the sort of event market in New York at the time. Were you coming in and easily accepted or did you have to really fight to get people to understand what you were trying to do? You know, my world um, had been really corporate and experiential marketing. And so I didn't understand the wedding market at all. And frankly, it scared okay. me a lot. Um, I think it was when <laughs> I had visited visited these other companies and it was all about the weddings. I was like, I have to learn about the sweetheart table and figure out how to talk to, you know, all these, sure. um, the brides. And I just, it really scared me. But, um, you know, we went out and and hit it, what I realized was those were going to be the early adopters for this. And, and that um, corporate, although there's so many interesting um, things that you can do experientially and, and activation wise, um, the wedding market was ready to adopt what we were doing and really excited about it. And so, no, it was not a hard sell. It was almost, you know, we were, we were definitely the first to market in the New York area. And, you know, they were 
we were just embraced in such a way. The concept, mm. um, the warm community of professionals, um, you yeah. know, people who wanted to share. And and the other thing that was really exciting for me as an entrepreneur, you know, the community of entrepreneurs that I found through the um, the event and wedding industry was really amazing. So many female mm. entrepreneurs, so many solopreneurs who were going through the same growth problems that I had right. gone through before. And, and so many right. people who are just, it's a very lonely thing being an entrepreneur sometimes. And so it's nice to have a, yeah. a community of people who you can bounce yourself around, bounce your ideas around with. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you're starting Patina, you're building this community. Um, tell me when the roller skating parties started. <laughs> For anyone who hasn't heard, Patina is famous for their roller skating parties. It's a fun and really smart way to connect with the industry and potential clients. How did those come about? When I started Patina, I, I built a business plan and a business model and a mantra and um, values and everything that was really based on scaling and having work-life balance and bringing yeah. other people in. So, um, you yeah. know, first thing I did was um, hire my sister, Kim, to yeah. work for me because um, she is awesome. And when you're doing something, you know, fun, you want, you know, yeah. fun people around. And so, she, and, and so she was great. She came on and, and we had so much fun kind of brainstorming um, in the early days. Um, and we really kind of curated our whole vibe and our whole brand as if we were, you know, a, a Fortune 500 company and, sure. and yeah. wrote, you know, the scripts and, and really kind of did it as if we were, um, much larger in scale. And so the roller skating party was one of those things that um, was really like exciting and fun and passionate to both of us. And and we both loved roller skating and we got some great DJs and we decked yeah. out the whole place and we had the disco balls. And, and it was just something that we started that really took off. And um, year after year, people were able to come see. We were able to use it as a, a showcase for our stuff and just meet new people right. and also generate social media and content around it. Right. And that was in your warehouse, right? You were roller skating yeah, in the warehouse? Yeah, the first time was in our warehouse. I can't believe we could actually fit so many people in our first <laughs> warehouse. And like that goes sure. to show you how much furniture we didn't have at the time. Um, mm. But, you know, now we've been through a couple of warehouses since. And yeah, we've moved out to different partner venues, um, which has been really fun because then we get to partner with them to showcase their unique space and bring in new clients right. for them. And so it's a nice right. biotic relationship. Well, it seems like it, you mentioned sort of a, a mantra and, and vision and values for your business. What can you share with us about that? What were those values that you put together at first and are they still in place? A lot of it was work-life balance. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was um, a, really a human approach to to everything that we're doing. Working with people that share similar values of you know being kind and working hard and putting their egos aside. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of the values and the and the core of the company weren't based in the collection. More about how we respect each other, how we trust each other, mm. how we speak to each other, how we don't have bureaucracy or traditional carrot and stick management and how we listen and share and, and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and, you know, allow ourselves to try new things and fail. Um, and mm. so, you know, it's a unique culture that that we've really built and it's, it's based on, um, you know, really fostering trust and respect amongst each other and amongst our clients. And, and that's really dictated everything. Um, you know, the, the three kind of tenets and, you know, the three, the three areas that I focus on really are culture, collection and clients. And, you know, they all mm -hmm. have a, they all have a, you know, 
an equal share, but um, culture and, and respect and trust is really kind of what underlies everything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have this kind of these agreements when we, you know, our handbook is just like a page or two and it's a, agreements of do what's, do what's best for yourself, do what's best for the client, do what's best for your coworker and do what's best for Patina, mm-hmm. you know, always come th- from it with integrity, even if that means we are, we're losing the business um, or we're not getting the job or, you know, we're not doing all right. Mm-hmm. Always come at it with integrity, you know, always follow, you know, we, there's always room for improvement no matter who it is or, or what it mm-hmm. is. Like, let's be creative and try to improve together. Mm-hmm. You know, we show examples in our regular meetings. Um, we act upon it in our weekly meetings, you know, calling mm-hmm. out situations where people have done just that. Um, we talk about it in our annual meetings. We, you know, it's it's pretty pervasive throughout everything we do. We talk about when we first hire people, yeah. you know. Um, it's, it's pretty important. And I think people, you know, I think it's important though that the culture is not necessarily dictated by me. It's like a living organism where everybody Mm. who joins it brings a different energy to the table and different ideas. When you started, you you talked about wanting to scale and build something that didn't have you at the forefront. So in what ways is it the thing that you imagined and in what ways is it different from that thing? Yeah, I think, you know, where before COVID, you know, we were, you know, we had a, a 30,000 square foot warehouse and 30 employees mm-hmm. and, you yeah. know, thousands and thousands of events. And we'd grown um, to, to to drive some, you know, to do some pretty sizable revenue from, especially yeah. from when we first started. And while we eventually got to where we, I wanted to be, um, and we're still going, um, there was so many, you know, starts and stops along the way. So, you know, one of the things that, um, I did was at first we started renting out smaller items and props and our average order size mm-hmm. was like a hundred dollars and you know yeah. that was not going to get us to where we needed to be and so quickly realized okay let's get rid of all of the small items and just really focus on the big sure. items and then we had you know a, a mismatched collection of furniture for so long because I was you know bootstrapping it and, and trying to do vintage yeah. initially and so um, you know our average order sizes were remained really small um, and so we spent years building out the collection because everything's kind of the the, the growth and the, the dollars and the funding that we're p- putting back into it is based on the year-over-year profits and so you know building out those collections um, so that we have a broader appeal um, a larger average order size um, so really you know thought about I think the collections, you know, the values are the same, kind of the visions are the same, the way we're managing our inventory, the way we're executing better, those are the things that are changed. Our, our right. approach to client service is, is really the same. Our approach to the brand is the same and our approach to the culture is the same, but the, the inventory and the operations have really grown significantly and changed quite a bit. Yeah. Um, so in the very unlikely event that someone listening isn't familiar with Patina, can you describe your collection as it is today? What What would you say is in your collection and what would you say about your collection? Yeah, our collection is really evolving a lot. Okay. We focus on building out different collections within our collection. So we've got kind of our new okay. neutrals collection where that's going mm-hmm. in one direction. We've got our new old fashioned collection. We've got our future perfect collection. We have a little capsule collection, which has some like cool vintage pieces um, that mm-hmm. are really fun and interesting to use. But, um, you know, we've got all of these different areas and we're, we're building out so that we have uh, enough inventory in each collection to be able to substantiate a, a really large 
events within each collection, but they all work sure. together really well. There's a lot of um, thinking about trends and, you know, we're in New York, so we have to be at the forefront. You know, a lot of our clients are fashion and we do fashion week and, and sure. um, tons of things where we have to be, you know, have the cutting edge of color, of texture, of shape, of silhouette. We have to, you know, we have to be there for our clients when they need it. Um, and so it's trend forward, but it's also versatile and usable. So you've got to anticipate that more than some other rental companies, maybe in a, in a less forward market, right? Yeah. We spend a lot of time really picking up on cues and, and doing a lot of research of, um, you know, fashion trends and furniture trends and, um, you know, looking at all the shows in Europe. But then what we do is really, um, we custom build some of our furniture, we reupholster a lot of furniture, and then we work with manufacturers to custom design things. And so um, we're trying to really make sure everything tells a story. So we'll pick a colorway um, in particular and identify what colors we think are going to be on trend for the next, you know, six, within the next six months for a few years. So, you know, not super specific, but something that we can get some mileage out of. So at this point, what percentage of your collection do you would you say you make in-house versus purchase versus are having custom made for you outside of patina you know we we made a lot we made a we made a whole bunch of stuff um pre-covid really since decided to kind of wind that down a little bit and and the reason for us the reason for us making a lot of stuff in house is that could have different things from our competition, have a little bit more quality mm-hmm. control, have a little bit more mm-hmm. um, stylistic control, and and not everything is is great for a rental. But um, you know, scaling up a full furniture production shop was something that um, we considered and and toyed with. But really, at the end of the day, it's a different business. Um, sure. And so, but, you know, we have so many creative people and, and so many people who, who uh, you know, get excited about doing that stuff. So now we just pretty much do small runs or prototypes or experiment okay. within. And then we, and right. then we work with partners outside to, to build those pieces. You mentioned that not everything works for rentals. And I mean, obviously you're looking for long-term durability, but also something that doesn't like way as much as a grand piano. What other kinds of factors are you thinking about when you're when you're imagining a piece for rental maybe that, you know, doesn't work the same in residential or commercial? You know, we have in New York, we have so many stair issues, um, mm. you know, and so many elevator issues. Not everything's on the right. on the ground floor. And so we have so many space issues in New York. So it's always kind of like things that are modular, things that can you know, collapse or, um, you know, we can build on site, right. you know, when it comes to furniture, the leg, the chairs and the couches, the legs, those damn legs break nonstop. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like finding ways to, to, to work with those legs and, um, you know, different leg styles or, or things that we can take off and put on. It's always kind of a problem. Right. The durability in terms of finishes, you know, we had some great tables that would rent all the time, but every single time they rented, they had to come into the shop. And so, you know, when you calculate the ROI on those guys, it's, it's just, you know, it's not worth it. And so, um, right. you know, it, it's it's that kind of thing about thinking about what's the true ROI of these pieces. You know, it should look like a piece that's not a rental piece, but it needs to act like a rental piece. 
Yeah. Well, and it needs the perfect amount of patina, right? You don't want it to have any more scratches or um, dents than its original character when you purchased it. But at the same yeah. time, you want it to have character and not just look like cookie cutter. So Yeah. You know, for a while when we when most of our things did have patina, uh, well, in the beginning, it was easy because everything like had patina and like it was like right. the chippy paint and the scratchy wood and that was like cool. Yeah. And so whatever, you rent it, it gets a little beat up. Cool, looks better, but that's definitely not It has not more the of case. a story to tell. <laughs> exactly. Um, but that's definitely not the case anymore. Mm. So we had to develop these rent-ready guidelines that were like, okay, if there's a scratch that's a little bit bigger than this, you know, call, let's escalate it if there's a, you know, a tear or a stain or that looks like this on this section, we have to escalate it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we got, our collection grew so quickly and we we yeah. had so many people coming into our team um, who really didn't understand the difference. And so, we, you know, the team really put together some awesome rent-ready guidelines. And, um, you know, now as we regrow the team again, we'll start to train and and, you know, make sure that's a big part of it. Yeah. So you said the team put that together. So did somebody come up with that idea or was that you saying, hey, we need rent-ready guidelines? Tell me what that process is like. You know, um, we were at a, we were in a little bit of a crisis mode because we were having our busiest um, month ever. And we had people, you know, starting in the warehouse and, and getting stuff out the door and client services was just, um, you know, working so hard and, and things were just kind of coming out. We had lots of new clients, and um, and that was the month that we got so many complaints um, about our stuff. And we take we take so much pride in our inventory. Sure. So it just killed us that like we got so many complaints that people didn't think our stuff was was good. And so like it, it bummed everybody out. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was a big fire drill. Um, and you know, like let's stop and figure this out right now and like let's get everybody involved and 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 there was a stopgap in terms of like okay, we just need more eyes on these orders. We're in the middle of it. We're in the thick of it. Like we need more eyes. We need we need people to double check these things. We need to and then we finally once once kind of the dust settled from the that busy season, um, we were able to spend the next you know, few months really developing it and getting feedback and figuring out what works for us. Um, and, and it's still improving, you know, it's still, it's a, it's a working process, living process. Well, it seems like you have to have employees who are pretty invested to care that much. They have to feel like they have some ownership in it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's hard to foster. The bigger you get, the harder that is to to yeah. foster, you know, when we, you know, when we we're at 35 people, um, at one point it's, you know, you, it's a mix, right. And so you're, right. you know, people who just started and are not vested and who are, um, do are meaning well, but maybe don't have the same level of, of empowerment or investment. And so, right. you know, it's something that doesn't, can't just come from one person. It has to be, that has to be the pervasive kind of feeling throughout the organization in order for the rest of the people to, to feel it and for it to be contagious, <laughs> which is what you want. Right. You know? right. Well, and it seems like, yeah, you've got to have that critical mass of, of committed team members in order for people who are new to to get that sense. Um, how do you feel like you found those people? I mean, obviously Kim was your first employee, but did did you have some kind of secret sauce for attracting the right kind of person? Um, you know, 
the the people that tend to to do well at Pratina are like people who are um, really creative, really self motivated, really kind of don't want to deal with bullshit. Um, who don't really. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. There's not a lot of ego. Mm-hmm. It's just like, sure. yeah, let, let's figure this out. Let's do this together. And, um, you know, maybe they've had like other job experiences that weren't the same. And this is like just a more like trusting, open, like let's figure this out kind of relationship. Um, sure. You know, we've got some really interesting people who a lot of them are in bands and are starting their own businesses and are just really creative and want to do good work and, and um, you know, like the people that they work with and like the people that the clients that we are able to serve. And so, yeah, we're really lucky to be able to find a group like this and um, we're starting to expand too. So if anybody, <laughs> anybody's <laughs> like that, Tina's hiring just, yes. just so you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's such a fascinating model. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of event rental business owners and one thing that I hear a lot is um, nobody can do it like me. You know, like I have to be at every setup because I have to be the one to place the pillows because I can't teach anyone that. Um, it seems like you have a really different mentality. Have, has that ever been part of what you were what you were hoping for? I know you talked about scale from the beginning, but h- how do you kind of pair that? desire for scale with also the desire for a very particular kind of outcome? Because I know that um, when I don't do it that way, I can't scale. So when I, my other business, that's what I did. Nobody could do it like me. I had to be the one on the client. I had to. And so with this one, it was a really intentional letting go to grow and realizing, you know, my skill set and my time is going to be far, far better spent on mentoring other people to do it and building, Mm. working on the business rather than doing it myself because um, they're going to come with new ideas. Um, They might not have done it exactly the same way that I do it. They might do it better. You know, they might um, Mm. come up with a new way to do it. And and I I think that um, I, I can't, you know, there's so many smart and talented people out there who can bring so much to the table. And mm. I think giving them the opportunity to learn and try and and grow and try different things, like we might, yeah, maybe if it doesn't go off exactly well, we'll lose a client. But it's not about that. It's really about building bigger so that we can all be better and 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 um, mm. learn and experience these things and improve the company overall. And so it's left me in a much healthier mindset and a much healthier place than I was before this whole thing to be able to mm. build a really healthy, sustainable, long-term company with a team that's um, you know going to help take it to the next level rather than what I did before, which was just go, 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 take every lead, act on every impulse, take every right. project. It's really a right. much, much different approach this time. And it's a much more, leaves me in a much more sane place than I was before. We're back with Corinne, and we're going to address a major pain point for a lot of event rental pros, pricing. How do you feel like pricing relates to profitability in your business? Because I know, like particularly in your market, you have the ability to charge a premium for what you're offering because it's not 
as readily available and you probably don't have a lot of people saying, I could do this myself. So um, you're in a great market. Um, but how do you strategize how yeah, much to Yeah, we charge? just recently went through all of our pricing and, and raised it all um, in a more consistent manner. And so at first it was just like pricing out of the way. I'm like, oh, this is really cool. I really like this. And, you know, we spent a lot of money on it, so I'm going to charge this. Um, whereas this one you can get anywhere, I'm going to charge this. And so it, it was kind of random at first, but um, now we have different um, price bands um, that for each category that are uh, definitely on the, the more premium side for sure. Um, so for instance, you charge X to X, X plus 200 yeah. for couches or something like your range for couches is maybe yep. 200 wide or chairs is $50 yep. Yep. wide or something. Um, I was pricing okay. for me and now we're pricing to help the, the client understand their budgets a little better, but right. building in that, right. um, that margin into to the price for sure. Well, and I think probably having those bands also helps you be strategic in your sourcing, yep. right? So if you're saying this chair can only rent for X, then I can't spend more than X times exactly. whatever on it. Yeah. Like setting your pricing based on what the client's getting out of it, not based on how yeah. much it costs you. I mean, you. we have couches that we've gotten for free that, you know, we, we charge the same as couches that we've, you know, and and I, and if there's something that's outside of that band, that's that's my fault. That's my over. It's higher than kind of that ROI. Like I understand the mm. ROI that I need to make to be ordered to price it in that band. And sometimes I'll make an exception, right? And so, but that's something that I'm willing to do, and I'm doing sure. with my eyes open. Maybe it's a capsule piece, um, and yes, maybe I'll spend a little bit more on it because it'll get more. Maybe it is a gateway drug, or maybe it is a you know an Instagram. Right. Um, you know, maybe it's an Instagram favorite. And so I'm willing to spend a little bit more money on that, but I'm still probably going to charge within the same band or there are things, like I said, that got for free that are within the same band. It, it really is about pricing um, for value and, and also helping our clients navigate their budgets a little bit more by keeping the pricing consistent in, within each category. Sure, sure. So... Um the, the profitability and the pricing piece are definitely big parts of this financial picture. But you mentioned the operations side as well. Um, you've definitely grown lots over the years and had to make some strategic decisions, particularly about warehousing. What has driven those decisions? How have you made a decision? Yeah, those, When's it time to move? Those like so hard. There's, it's so difficult in New York. Uh, <laughs> warehousing yeah, and like the need yeah. for space. Oh, so we the first warehouse that we that I got was, um, you know, we had 5,000 square feet and, you know, we mm -hmm. had nothing in it. That's where we had the skate party. We only had a few few pieces and we had very right. little revenue. And so that was a really big risk. And that was the biggest financial risk that we had taken. I think yeah. the rent was, you know, not a lot. It was kind of in this really weird part of Brooklyn that um, didn't really, that came into its own after we kind of got there. But um you you made it cool, <laughs> is what you're saying? No, I wish I could take credit for making it cool, but that's not the case. <laughs> okay, sorry. Before we go to the second warehouse, tell me about this first warehouse. You're taking this risk. It's 5,000 square feet. It's obviously more than you need. But were you sort of doing math in your head saying, okay, in three years, I think I'm going to be making this much revenue, and so I'll need this much space? Like, Or was it like, oh, there's not that much space available. This one's good enough. We'll take no, it. No, I, like, I, I knew we were going to need 5,000 square feet. Um, 
I mean, I, I wanted okay. to grow the collection really quickly. Like I, once I decided to do it and like sure. once we got kind of that initial reaction, it was like, yep, this is what I'm doing, you know, and, and this is going to work. And yeah. if it doesn't, at least I'm going to like give it my best shot. And so, yeah, yeah. so the 5,000 square feet, I, I thought, you know, it, it became really cramped really quickly um, because at that time was really, I was super, super focused on buying and, and building up that inventory. Mm. But the warehouse space, yeah, the warehouse space is really tricky. We've, we moved up um, to a larger, we took out 17,000 square feet and then we moved, we got another 17,000 square yeah. feet. And so we've right. continued to grow um, our warehouse space. We've recently cut back uh, some of it for co- because of this year with COVID um, and needed to cut our expenses right. for sure. Um, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know when to, it's not fun. <laughs> it's definitely not the fun part yeah. of the business moving, um, but it's so right. important. Right. And, and it is that risk. It's a, a risk because you're trying to anticipate what thing, what your needs will be, not just today, but what will your needs be by the end of the lease? Because you don't want to get into something and three years in feel like, ah, it's too big or it's too small. And we're doing this whole yeah, dance again. Yeah. You know, the when we moved from the from the 5,000 square foot to the 17,000 square foot, that was a huge price increase. That was a huge, you know, that was a big right. leap. Uh, that was scary, really scary. But we were at the point where we were maxed out. We couldn't we couldn't operate anymore. We couldn't increase any revenue, couldn't increase headcount or inventory. Even if we called back and, sure. and just really focused on our top renters, it was still, you know, we had the demand was there to grow and we couldn't fulfill it because we had inventory issues and that was our bottleneck. And so we needed to move. Right. right. And I seem to recall years ago, you mentioning to me that you you kind of had shifted your mindset to think of your deliveries as its own separate business because you it was eating into the profitability of the rental side when you just kind of all were, are always underestimating how much the yep. delivery cost is. Am I remembering that right? Is that is that what yep, process yep. you went so, through? So, you know, the delivery, it, it's, we, we think of it as a separate business from a P&L standpoint. Those delivery costs are really yeah. high, you know, and um, it takes a long time and a lot of manpower to do the stuff that we all do. You're hitting traffic. It's it's a very, very costly endeavor. The trucks are expensive. The leases are expensive. The right. way, All of that stuff is expensive. And so um, I feel like it's also one of the things our clients struggle with the most is is why our delivery fees are so much. And and the reason is we don't hmm. take we that all that whole operation has to stand on its own. Um, the cost of the yeah. delivery has to cover and slightly make out on that that effort. Otherwise, it doesn't make financial sense for us right. to be able to deliver those those things. So. Is that what you lean on when you explain that to clients or what's when they object to the delivery price, you know, what, what kinds of things can you say or do you say to help them understand the value? Um, you know, they can, they can pick it up themselves. They can find a third party. Um, but yeah, you know, some, a lot of people are already, they produce events. We have a lot of repeat clients and so they're used to it, but oftentimes it is a little bit of a, a sticker shock, especially when it's like, oh, but it's just down the block or it's just here, it's just there. It's like, well, you know, we, we, 
we have a really good team. You know, we pay them really fair wages. Yeah. Um, we understand the time that it's going to take. We've delivered, you know, do we deliver deliveries like this all the time? We've delivered thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And we're giving you a really, um, yeah. you know, that's what it costs to do business. And, you know, where the service we're providing to you is renting the furniture and delivering the furniture. They're not, you know, they're, it's, they're two different, they're, they're not, not bundled. bundled. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it is what it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's encouraging to hear you speak of that with such confidence because I know so many event rental businesses feel the pressure to not charge what it costs them for delivery. And I feel like that's one of the ways that you can just shoot yourself in the foot. It really prevents you from scaling. It really prevents you from having any kind of profitability. It prevents you from hiring people when you need to. And that leads to burnout when you're the one on the deliveries all the time. So um, thank you for sharing that wisdom. I think that's going to encourage a lot of people. (laughs) Well, I want to shift a little bit and talk about marketing for a minute. Um, you talked about how operations or in the delivery side can really eat at your profitability. I feel like one thing that um, I see kind of drain bank accounts is marketing efforts. So can you share with us a little bit about what channels you use to communicate yeah, with your audiences? Um, so, you know, we are really lucky in that. And I imagine um, there's a lot of people in our boat in this industry who, you know, we don't do a lot of marketing. We don't do any advertising per se. We really try and create, sure. um, you know, a word of mouth. And and that's by delivering the best customer service, by having those great pieces, by using our, you know, primarily Instagram account yeah. really well. Um, and so those are the things that are really important to us in, in, in terms of being able to generate word of mouth. Um, we used to spend a lot of money on Instagram in that we would just do photo shoots all the time and um, to develop yeah. Instagram content content while Instagram's free, the photography wasn't and the time spent on the photo shoots and buying all the props and kind of all those things. You know, it worked for us in the beginning because it was really, um, it, it got us a lot of followers. It got us a lot of recognition. It really helped build the brand and, yeah. and help showcase our offering. Um, but right. since then, um, you know, email newsletters have worked really well for us. Social media continues to work well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those skate parties were really fun and, and a, a nice piece of marketing for yeah. sure. Um, but we don't spend money on traditional advertising or traditional marketing. And it's more about relationship developing. Yeah. And I, I remember years ago... Um, you did something that I feel like was really interesting. You, It was relationship building, it had social media attention, and it also really expressed what your brand is all about. And that was, you had a design competition yeah. in your warehouse when you were introducing your yep. cabanas. Yeah, yeah, is that, that right? was so fun. The cabana challenge was great because we were able to like, we had the warehouse full of furniture and we had these like cool, like little kind of 12 by 12 kind of like, boho cabanas and 
they were, we brought in uh, designers and um, people who had Instagram followings at the time. So maybe they were a stylist or an interior designer or an event planner mm-hmm. or just kind of some, some sort of influencer in the space. And they needed content and mm-hmm. we needed content. And so we kind of gave them, you know, yeah. a cocktail and blasted the music and sent them around the warehouse and told them to kind of come back and um, create this design in an hour. Um, and we filmed it and so we took fun. so many pictures and they were able to share their their creations and it was able we were able to do so many and then it was great because we could showcase the the you know the breadth of our inventory and how many different styles you could create with it right. and it had that kind of fun challenge aspect and it also brought us to a place where we could get more um Instagram followers because we were able to work with them and collaborate on developing, you know, right. that design process. And so that was really, really fun and something we're really proud of. And um, you know, we're always talking about doing stuff like that again soon. I'm interested to know more about how you personally relate to your business. Um, are there are there ways that you think you've personally grown since starting Patina? Yeah, you know, it's it's really um I think being an entrepreneur who's a mom and and balancing that is really been interesting. Mm. Having the ability to, like you said, curate and design my life. I'm so, so lucky to be able to do that. And it's one of the reasons entrepreneurship is really interesting, but Mm. you know, it's also very hard and, and, um, and being strategic about my lifestyle and, and how much, um, energy I want to put towards a certain thing, uh, is really, really sometimes um, difficult, but I'm really happy to have the ability to make those choices. But when it comes to patina, it's really that my growth over there, I, I really work on leadership a lot. You know, I'm always trying to build my leadership mm. skills. I'm trying to build my financial acumen. Yeah. What are some of the big decisions or turning points you've had that you feel like have really impacted you as an entrepreneur? Um, yeah. So I, uh, a few years ago, I started another business out of Patina um, called Nomad. And that was really, you know, Patina was growing mm-hmm. and we were doing primarily events. And um, there was nothing in the market for in-home rentals. And so um, now today there's, right. you know, Feather and Mobley and, and what have you. But at that time there wasn't. And so sure. I thought, you know, this could be something really cool. It really could take off. And, and um, it's something that we can right. manage here at Patina. We've got the warehouse. We've got the bank. We can just piggyback off of it and kind of leap start it. Right. It seemed like it, was, it could be viable. It would take a lot to take off. Um, built the branding, started out with a website, then did, did the buying. And the whole buying process was really about like turnkey living rooms, turnkey bedrooms, things like that. Um, right, right. So bought a ton of inventory, um, and then went to market, um, and fell really short in terms of giving it the resources it deserved for such a major project. Mm. Um, I couldn't execute Mm. internally. Like we didn't, I was trying to double dip with patina resources and piggyback and just take the same approach with a different clientele. And that was a big mistake. Um, and I didn't put enough money into, to getting the word out, um, and marketing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and really thought that slow organic growth could potentially work in this situation as it did with Patina, and I was wrong. It was a right. good idea, really, really bad execution. Um, I I tried to 
leveraged too much of Patina's staff and too much of Patina's resources, and it kind of sucked us dry. And meanwhile, in you know the same year, um, there was a couple companies that ended up getting a ton of funding, and they got you know these twenty million dollar venture backed situations, and and I was trying to bootstrap it myself. Um, and you know, it was it was definitely the wrong approach, um, and I learned a lot. And and I learned, you know, it was it was also at the same time that we were trying to take on manufacturing of furniture, and mm, um, right. you know, trying to build that end of the business so that it could feed both of these entities. And um, it was it was a lot, and I set a lot of of goals for my team and a lot of goals for the company, and and we had some some big growth goals, and and we were still in, in a real growth phase, and so. I threw too much at, at everybody at once and we were trying to do too many things at once. And, um, you know, that was a big learning of like, okay, let's really ratchet down what our, you know, if I'm going to do this, it needs a separate business. And if I'm, and it went on too long, if I was going to fail, I needed to fail faster. It sapped energy and resources Mm. out of the team. So now Mm. rather than branching out, we're really focused on like, you know, doing what we're doing, but just much, much better rather than going out mm. to new markets. It's like, let's get really, really, really good at the stuff we're doing and grow that sure. way, grow where we're planted rather than taking on all these new markets with the same team and the same resources. Not to be, not to say sure. we can't do that in the future with a different team or different resources or a different backbone, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's people need focus and purpose and clarity. Well, big thanks to Corinne and everyone at Patina. Check out the show notes to find links to her website and Instagram if you're not already following. And while you're checking out the show notes, look out for the link to join the RW Elephant mailing list. And now get ready to hear Corinne's answer to my lightning round questions. Three words to describe your collection. Um, intentional, soulful, and on trend. Mm-hmm. Nice. What is one trait you look for when hiring? Curiosity. I want people to be really, really, really curious about everything. Yeah. If you could only have one type of fabric in your collection, Mm. what would it be? Well, today we're redoing everything in boucle this month. (laughs) Um, Ooh. So I'm going to have to go with boucle today. Maybe tomorrow it'll be something different. <laughs> Perfect. A business book you'd recommend? Mm, I think the two everybody should have on their bookshelves are The E-Myth and Profit First. Those are just two fundamentals that have so much wisdom. Yeah. What is something other event pros do that annoys you? <laughs> um, sells themselves short. Um I think people don't understand the value that they bring to the table and undercharge or um, take it, take it on the chin. Everybody under, needs to mm. understand the real events are so difficult. Event planners are are really they have a big job. Anybody in the event world has a has a serious job, and it's hard to produce good events and and have it at a high level of execution. Um, and so yeah. it annoys me when people undersell their value. Do you rent, lease, or purchase your delivery vehicles? All of the above. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Two things outside of work you love to do. 
Um, I love to hike and cook. Mm. What business tool do you use that you couldn't live without? Mm. RW Elephant, of course. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> um, would you rather pack a delivery truck blindfolded or get a last minute order for a 200 person event that's happening tomorrow? Oh my God. Last minute order for a 200 event happening okay. tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, and what do you think the next big trend is in rentals? Hmm. I, that's a really good question. I think we're going to continue to see really creative companies come up. You know, I think we're seeing so many interesting in-home rentals uh, that are like unique and antique and and rare, one-of-a-kind pieces. And I think we're going to see people doing what we're doing at the home level. Um, you know, mm. it's it's and um, for temporary spaces like or longer term spaces or museums or offices, I think we're going to see really sure, cool sure. curated collections for those types of businesses and um, personal lives. Well, that's fun. I, I'm looking forward to that already. Um, so here's my final question. What do you enjoy most about your rental adventure? The constant learning and the constant growth and the collaboration with people to figure out, you know, what's next and how to do things better mm. and how to build new collections and the, the, the team and the, you know, the creative event professionals that we work with are always pushing the envelope and they force us to do the same. Mm. And so just like working with cool people who are just trying to push everything forward and in the, in the best way, that's, that's the fun part. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that we got to chat. Yeah, me too. This was fun. Well, that's our show. Thanks again to Corinne. And thank you for listening to The Trunk Show, brought to you by RW Elephant. I'm your host, Allison Howell. Happy renting. <laughs>